We're in Luke 18 and verse 1. And he spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought to always pray and not to faint. You think, well, yeah, yeah, fainting is probably not good, but that's not really what the word means. Uh, it has a couple of meanings, but when, when you look this up in Thayer's dictionary, he has these definitions of what we ought not to do. Uh, we ought not to be utterly spiritless. Well, yeah. We ought to not be wearied out with our well-doing. We should not be exhausted or weary or faint. Now, Strong and A.T. Robertson both see in the root of that word the possibility of a bad connotation. So in that word is the Greek word kakos, and it, it really means evil. And the root of this word is not given in to evil, would be a literal translation of it, not to give in to evil. Uh, the literal translation of the Greek, that's not necessarily how they used it. Now, you know, there's a lot of words that we use, that we, they don't mean what we use them for, so it all depends on context. So I wanted to pull up this context where Paul uses the word, and it helps you to understand what Jesus is trying to teach us here. What Jesus wants us to learn, I shouldn't say trying to teach us, he didn't need to try at anything. Therefore, seeing this is Paul now, he's been defending his ministry in 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, uh, this, this authority that God has given us, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced. We faint not, but have renounced. You see how that ties together? Fainting not means I didn't renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about calling my insurance man, and I haven't done it yet, but I feel like if I, if I find out that the damage to that tower was, <clears throat> what do you call it, uh, prior to the last wind event in Middlebury, it would be craftiness or dishonesty for me to call him and say, yeah, I think that was hurt in the build, in the windstorm, see? So, I mean, even if it means it costs us an extra $15,000, I think we're better off to put off the repairs and wait than to just use the insurance company in such a way. This is what Paul is saying. Whatever we do in the process of building a church anywhere, especially in Paul's day, he said, he said he's not going to do it through craftiness or evil deceit. Even when facing difficult times, Paul refuses to resort to the world's methods. And we all have to be careful of that because it's easy to slip back into the world's way of thinking. It's very easy for all of us. So we have, Paul said, denounced dishonesty, craftiness, and deceit. You know, we're praying about something and we think, I know how we could do this, you know. But it's clearly not of the Lord. That's not the way to do it. We should not resort to these things. If, if, if we're praying about something that we really think the Lord needs to get done or that we really need done by the Lord, we must rely on the Lord and trust Him to do it in our lives. Determine that only truth would commend ourselves to God. Only truth. And then Paul reiterates himself in verse 16, For this cause we faint not. We don't turn back. Uh, but through our outward, although our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We, we too must be determined not to think, not to resort to the world's methods, 
not to feel like we've been abandoned, not to feel sorry for ourselves, but we must take courage in boldness of speech and action, in patience and suffering, strong and persistent in prayer, never resorting to the world's methods to advance our cause. And the interesting thing about this, as Jesus teaches, is he often uses a negative example. Now you recall back in chapter 16, he used the example of a somewhat treacherous bookkeeper to display, to teach us how we ought to behave as, as Christians, in that this unjust steward, if you'll recall, took money from his boss, paid off loans, or he actually wrote off loans that people owed him in order to get himself in a better position when he, having been caught, gets fired from his job. So he was actually planning for the future in a devious way. Now, Jesus isn't telling us to be devious. He's just telling us we need to think about our future and plan for it in that. Now, the same thing is true here with this unjust judge. You know, it's saying there was in the city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Not a good title to describe a judge. You really hope that you get behind in front of a judge that fears God and regards us. You know, he cares about us. This guy's, he ain't afraid of nothing. And there was a widow in that city and she came unto him saying, avenge me of mine enemies. Now, now, this hard-boiled judge wasn't going to bow down to anyone. He was going to write his own way, you know. But it says here, there was a widow in that city and she came. And it's, it's, it's a verb that indicates over and over and over again. It's what's called an imperfect tense in the verb. It just kept happening over and over and over again. Now, she was asking him to avenge me of mine adversaries. Now, when, you, when we think of vengeance, we think about knocking them in the head. But in this case, the word means she was clamoring for justice. She was asking him to do what's right by her, to vindicate her in this legal matter. Uh, not so much to punish the other guy as to do what's right by her. That was the purpose of this thing. This guy had no intention. She was a woman. She had no status in the community. She had no husband that could bring her case to her. She had no money. She couldn't afford a lawyer. She was in a situation where she there was no reason in the world that he should even listen to her. Sound familiar? And he would not for a while, but afterward, he said within himself, No, I, I, I don't care about God, and I'm not I don't care what this woman thinks. I, I don't fear God nor regard man. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by continual coming she wearies me. You know, I, I don't like this example, but I didn't pick it. The Lord did, you know. The idea, lest she wear me out. Some commentators you read will say the judge was actually afraid of the widow. I don't think that was the case, but here again, the root of this word has a has a, a an origin story, I should say it that way. And it may not actually be what the judge was thinking, but it actually means to beat black and blue. Uh, and I, I think wearied in the sense of continually pummeling her with her request, not so much as giving him a black eye, but it literally means to beat him black and blue. So met metaphorically, the word means an intolerable annoyance. She became an intolerable annoyance. Now, I, I don't like this illustration because I don't think I want to be an intolerable annoyance to God. You know, and I, I'm pretty sure that's also not what Jesus was saying. I think what he was saying is, this woman was persistent. And even though this judge didn't care about her or her cause, her persistence will pay off. I don't think that's saying that God doesn't care about her causes. I think if we're not careful, we'll read too much in this parable. 
all Jesus is saying is there wasn't in this town a judge that didn't care and a woman that did, and her persistence paid off. I don't, I don't think he's saying God is that judge who doesn't care. You see what I'm saying? It would be easy to get kind of read too much into this parable and, and really not like it. And Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge said. Look what he said. This woman is wearying me. This woman is wearying me. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. I don't think we're going to weary God with our prayers. But I do think Jesus is teaching us that he wants us to be persistent. Now, I think a lot of you have been persistent in prayer. You know, I, I actually, uh, let me get to the next verse. Jesus is explaining what, Je- Jesus is explaining what he's saying by using this parable. And shall not God avenge his own elect? You were chosen by him. Elect, that's what it means. You were chosen by God. Should not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Though he bear long with them? Though he's patient? You see, I, I, I can't help but think of my brother-in-law, Bob Fuchs. I've mentioned it a number of times now that he's... I, I don't even know if he's still alive, but the last I heard, he was really just waiting to die. I mean, the doctors could do no more for him. And I, I, I've been witnessing this, this man on and off for 30 years and I've been praying him on and off praying for him, no I'm sorry, 50 years and I've been praying for him on and off for 50 years, this was a dear friend of mine 50 years ago, although we've long since separated and barely know each other now, I visited him about two years ago and he still didn't want to hear anything about the gospel at all, Uh, even after a massive stroke he just, he didn't want to hear it you know, and and I think man what are those prayers doing And uh, you, you tend you're all, you all have somebody, every one of you has someone you're praying for like that, that they're just not responding. And, and there's, there's a temptation in my heart to say, well, they're just not chosen by God, or they're just not going to make it, or God can't save them. And it, it's, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to faint. See what I mean? It's easy to stop praying for them. And Jesus is saying, we should keep praying. We should hang in there. I, rem- I think about Mark Tinkle, Paul. What a funny last name. Uh, died last year was a member of this church, got, came in, got saved, largely through the ministry of Rod and Barb, and got saved and uh, made a profession of faith, was baptized, became a Christian, and died. And, you know, we think, oh, what a terrible waste. I mean, we were glad he was saved, don't get me wrong, but here's a man with an intellect through the roof. And you, 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 I would just ride around wondering what God could do with that intellect, you know. I mean, the guy was so smart and, and loved studying the Bible and... and, and Love commentaries. You just think, wow. And then he died. And you think, oh, what a, what a terrible waste. But then we get a call from his brother, Kevin, who thanked us profusely for our part, which was nothing. I mean, God did everything. Uh, but for our part, uh, particularly thanking Barb and Rod for their part, but uh, he'd been praying for his brother for his whole life. Ever since he'd become a Christian, Kevin had been praying for his brother and had lost hope that it was even possible that his brother would be saved. And yet he was saved, gloriously saved. And we know now that he's in the presence of God. So don't give up praying for people. Keep it up. You know, and when you, when you, you can't believe anymore, get someone else to pray with you. That's really the point. And then you ask the question, you know, why does God delay? Why does he wait so long in answering our prayers? And there's a couple of reasons. One is Jesus says right there, though he bear along with them, God is patient. You know, I, I remember Catherine Marshall when she was talking about time 
God doesn't care about our time. Time, and I think, what's it, Peter that says it too? We're not ignorant of this one thing. Peter says that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And time for God is different. And Catherine would say, the one thing I've noticed about God, you know, her husband died very young and she had a terrible time accepting the death of her, her, her husband Peter. And uh, she, like, like uh, Mark, she saw the incredible um, possibilities in Peter Marshall's life. Author, chaplain of the uh, Congress for the United States, uh, lived in Washington, D.C., pastor of the church, all the things that Peter could have done. That God could have done through Peter, and then then he dies, and she just couldn't accept it, you know. And she said one of the things she's noticed about God, when you're praying about something, is God is very slow, He's very slow. And I don't know if He does that so it develops in us persistence in prayer or to develop our faith. I, I don't know the answer to that. But Peter says, you know, time with God is is different. And 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 when you read that, you think, well, God is a guy that has a lot of time on his hands. You know, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. But that, that's really not what that passage is saying. It's saying, it's not saying that God is a being with lots of time on his hands. It's saying that God is a being outside of time. He's outside of our time domain. So, you know, what for God, what for God, a day to him means nothing. It, it, it might be a thousand years to us, it might be a thousand years, might be a day to him. God is outside our time domain. I mean, when you look at both of those statements, they both can't be true. Unless you're outside the time domain. I don't know if you've thought about that at all, but you know, you, you, a day with the world is a thousand years, you know, you think, well, a day is a thousand years. That means his time goes very slowly, right? But then a thousand years a day, that means his time goes very fast, and you think, well, it can't be both, right? Can't be both. He's, he's outside of our time dominion. I don't know if I don't know if you know. I, I had a professor talking about this one time, and he was talking about God does have to wait from one thing to collapse after another, after another, after another. That God is operating within the sequence of our timeline. But whether or not He can see all points of our timeline at the same time, I don't know. But it did say when the fullness of time was come, He sent forth His Son. So time, time actually has a sequence with God. It's just that he's kind of outside of it and perhaps can pick and see all the timelines at one time. I'm, I'm way off in an area of, uh, I don't understand, but you see where we get in trouble when we pray and we think, Lord, I need you to act now. I need you to act now and, and now or soon. I don't know if you're watching the Chosen series, but every time Peter says soon, Jesus smiles. Yeah, soon. Soon. Peter, he said, Peter, you really like that word, don't you? Soon. Yeah. Are you coming back soon? Soon. You know, and Peter would realize the stupidity of saying to an eternal being, could we get a timeline on that, Lord? You know. Peter goes on to say, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. Talking about the second coming now. But is long-suffering, patient to us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. You know, if he had come back 20 years ago, everyone that was saved in the last 20 years wouldn't have any chance at all of heaven. Many of them wouldn't have any chance at all of life. God is patient, waiting till he's gotten everyone he can get. Long-suffering, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You could get lost in this passage, I know, and you could really blow your mind, but the context here is evangelism. And God is interested in saving as many as possible. This is the point. Let's get back to Luke. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Didn't say soon. Speedily. And I, I think the word should be translated quickly in the way that we use these words. In the, He will return them in quickness just as we talked about in the last chapter. The character of the second coming worldwide, universal, sudden quickness and final finality. You know, we keep thinking, we, we wish the Lord would return. We wish the Lord would return. But it's going to be a terrible time. And it's going to be a terrible time all over the entire world. It's going to affect everyone. And it, it'll be final. Final. See? So when he says speedily, he's saying he will avenge them quickly. It will happen very quickly. Not necessarily today. Not necessarily tomorrow. But when time is up, time is up. And then Jesus makes this odd statement in this passage. Nevertheless, and some translations say how be it, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find this faith on the earth? It's hoi story. The faith on the earth. You know. Will there be, at the time when I return, men and women who remain persistent in prayer, who hold fast to their faith, even when things are going wrong, who reject the twisted ways of the world in doing God's work, and like Paul rejected in nearly every town where he preached, it seems, as you read the book of Acts, who was shipwrecked, yet persisted, beaten in many towns, imprisoned numerous times, three as I recall, and stoned to death. Actually stoned to death, God had to raise him from the dead. Then he stood up. That might be my, my retirement party. Once I was stoned, I would say, that's maybe God's got a message here for me, you know? Yeah. Stoned to death. We assume that's when he had his vision of heaven. Out-of-body experience. We don't know. He doesn't tell us that. But he does tell us he had an out-of-body experience. We assume it's after that town drug him out of town and stoned him to death. If you want to talk about persistence, stood up, dusted himself off, walked on to the next town and said, let me tell you about Jesus. I'm telling you. You know, as humans go, clearly, according to our records, we don't know about thousands of missionaries around the world. We don't know much about most of the missionaries around the world, but it's as far as the record goes, Paul's clearly the greatest human missionary that ever lived. No doubt about it. Well, why did he do that? Now this is the point. A point. Because for Paul, the call of God was more important to Paul than his own life. God's calling in his life was the most important thing. God's methods were more important than Paul's own intellect, which was incredible. God's purposes for him were, was more important than Paul's plans for himself. God's will for him was more important than Paul's idea of what should happen. 
So instead of going into a town thinking, well, I need to find a way to reach everybody, Paul would pray, you see. We too must decide what matters to us. Is it going to be God's will or is it going to be my will? Is it going to be God's way or is it going to be my way? So is it going to be God's power or is it going to be my power? And Jesus is going to tell us about the danger of trusting our own strength in this next passage. So it, it leads right into this, the danger of self-trust in the next verse. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, self-trust, thinking that in my own strength, in my own works, I am righteous. And thus despising others who in my own estimation aren't as righteous as I am. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a publican. This is a very familiar parable. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, do you love that? The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. A.T. Robertson says it was a soliloquy to his own soul. Talking to himself. Wasn't talking to God. Prayed thus within himself. I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. There's a publican in the temple with me. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He could, he could have gone on and on and on and on, as Paul did in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with that passage, you need to read that, because you get to a point where Paul says, I realize this is all just waste of time. The Pharisee thought his own efforts at law-keeping would get him into God's grace. Let me repeat that. The Pharisee thought his own efforts would get him into God's grace. He was wrong. I'm not like others, he said. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this nasty old publican here. Now, you know, publican was a tax collector. They're not even too popular in our society today. Somebody comes and sits down and says, I'm from the IRS. We always move away from him, hoping he doesn't look at us too closely. You know, I'm from the IRS. I had a brother-in-law once who worked for the IRS. I was glad when my sister divorced me. I'm not like others. I fast twice a week. The law doesn't require that. It requires that they fast once a year. Interesting. I give tithes of all that I possess. I, I, I. And yet Genesis to Revelation, first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, is very consistent. And all the way through the Bible. That self-effort won't get anyone into God's graces. Won't get anyone to heaven. You can't go to heaven by your own good works. Won't happen. Can't happen. It's impossible ever since the fall. Adam and Eve could not work their way into heaven. That was the point, you see. That's why God had to come down and kill an animal and skin it. He had to offer blood and he had to cover them. We not only need a blood atonement, but we need a covering by the Lord Jesus Christ for we can't be saved. This is the point. This was the whole point of the sacrificial system is that, that it would look forward to the time when Jesus would come and be our lamb and he'd shed his blood and cover us with his righteousness. The whole Old Testament looks forward to the middle point of the Bible, the beginning of what we call the new contract. You know, But not only did Adam and Eve unable to save themselves, no matter what they did, if they did everything right, from that moment that they fell on, they'd still go to hell, and they'd go to hell because they'd already done one thing wrong. The problem with the law, the law is fine as long as you keep it. That's what James says. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with us. And once you've broken them, once I've broken the law, I'm a lawbreaker. And having become a lawbreaker, there's nothing I can do to undo my past. If I could go back in the past and change all the wrongs I've done, well, that would be a chance at the law saving me, but it's impossible. 
Because unlike God, we're stuck in this timeline. And having done one thing wrong, we're sinners. Simple as that. Adam and Eve, all the way up to the tribulation saints in Revelation chapter 17, chapter 7 and verse 14, it says they washed their sins in the blood of the Lamb. That's the point. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis all the way to Revelation all the way through. There's no other way. And I, 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 I want you to hear that. Understand there's nothing we can do in the flesh to earn salvation. Paul writes about this better than anyone, so I went back to him. I was a little concerned that uh, Linda had stolen my verse. She didn't know what I was talking about. This, and she never checks on my verses, but I, I was a little bit afraid she was going to read my verses. wouldn't hurt to read it twice, though, would it? Uh, I love that verse. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the prerequisite for salvation? To call. Call on Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 3.20, a favorite passage of mine, Therefore by the deeds, the doing, the keeping, of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. Justified is an important term. It means to be declared not guilty. A lot of people like to define this as just as if I've never sinned. It's wrong, but it's cool. I mean, it's kind of nice, except it's not right. Justified means your trial's been held and you've been found not guilty. Justified is a judicial declaration, a judicial declaration of guiltlessness. The judge has held your trial. Look at Jesus who died for you. Said he's not guilty. She's not guilty. And hit the gavel on the table. You've been declared justified. Therefore, by trying to keep the law, there shall no flesh, no humans anyway, be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All the law teaches us is what we've done wrong. See? But now the righteousness of God, a righteousness with God supplies, apart, without apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul, of course, is writing to people who knew the Old Testament. Now, the people that knew the Old Testament can go back in there and see that justification by faith has been the plan of God all the way from the beginning. It's in the Old Testament. That's what Paul is saying there. Even the righteousness of God, which is by, you know those little prepositions, in, with, by, or for, it's through, in faith, it's through faith, trusting Jesus Christ. Even the righteousness of God which comes to us through trusting Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And of course this verse that everyone knows, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What a wonderful passage. Being justified, declared not guilty, freely, without charge, by His grace, unmerited favor, we didn't deserve it, you can't get into a position where we deserve it because we're all fallen. Being declared not guilty without any charge whatsoever by his unmerited favor through the redemption. Now, we all know what redemption means. You know, you, you, you take these bottles that you bought once and then the store the store gives them to you and then you go back and you redeem the deposit or, or bought back. Through the purchase again, through the bought back. I mean, where, where did he own us the first time? When he made us. And then we, we sold ourselves to Satan. And he redeemed us. He came and bought us back. He bought us back from the world system. What a, what a sentence. I, you know, the guy, it's a good thing they tied him down in the jail and, and, and forced him to, to write. Because he had an intellect that was just unfathomable. Being declared not guilty without any charge by the unmerited favor through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Don't be afraid of that word. It just means a sin payment whom God has set forth to be a sin payment through trusting faith in His blood. 
to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. I know this is a rabbit, but I like this rabbit. Where's boasting then? Who's boasting? This Pharisee. What right has he got to boast if he's saved? None. There's absolutely no room for boasting enough. I am a Christian. I remember one time I was shopping at a mall in Memphis, Tennessee. We were in seminary, our second seminary, mid-America, and there was an artist there, and all his themes were Christian. And I said to this guy, he was taller than I was. I was always a little intimidated by people that are like 6'6", six, six, you know. And I went up to him and I said, so are you a Christian? And he goes, I'm more than a Christian. And I thought, what's that? <laughs> Jesus? Are you Jesus? Uh, I said to my wife, I said, what, what's more than a Christian? You know, where is boasting then? What do you mean more than a Christian, man? You know. I, I, I didn't ask him. He was too big to ask. Anyway, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is declared not guilty by faith, trusting in Jesus, apart, without, apart from the deeds of the law. There's no way we're going to work our way into heaven. There's no way we're going to earn salvation. Yeah, I know, it's a rabbit. We'll get back to the publican. And the publican, Jesus said, standing afar off, he wouldn't even get close. He wouldn't even get close would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Now, Matthew was a publican. And was Zacchaeus, the guy in the tree, was he also a publican? Do I have my history right? So this may not be a parable at all. This may be a story. But Luke said it was a parable. We could be talking about Matthew. Could be talking about Zacchaeus. And the publican standing afar off would not look up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector, this traitor to his people, saw himself as unworthy to draw near to God, unable to even lift his face up towards God, continually beating his own chest in shame. Cries out to God, O God, helasto me. It isn't, O God, have mercy. The word halaskomai means appease my sins that separate me from you. It's the idea of being not merciful, but propitious. Pay for my sins. Oh God, appease my sins. Become my sin payment. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus said, I tell you. This man went down to his house justified, declared not guilty, rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. What a beautiful point. The point is, of course, if we exalt ourselves, we'll be abased. If we really think we're something, we're nothing. That's what Paul said. If you think you're something, when you're really nothing, you're deluding yourself. If we humble ourselves, we will be lifted up by God. That teaching is cover to cover in the Bible. All you have to do is read it. Now, as Jesus was teaching this, you've got to love these interruptions. I don't think he planned them. I just think God worked with him and the Holy Spirit worked with him as he taught and said. Then parents began bringing their little kids to Jesus. And they brought unto him also infants. Now, Matthew said, when Matthew retold this story, he said, little children. And Luke uses the word infants. 
Um, but I think they're probably old enough to walk and talk and squeal and pull on beards and cause a distraction. So that's what I'm thinking. I don't know that. I like the Matthew little children better than infants. I think infants, they're just little tiny kids that you hold. But I don't think that was the case here. I could easily be wrong. They brought him to an infant that, would, that he would just touch them. Well, when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Please, don't bother the master with this. We need it quiet in this church service. We can't have this kid pulling on your, on your tunic. You know, we can't have this pulling on your beard, Jesus. But Jesus called them unto himself and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such, of such, is the kingdom of God. Oh, you know, I don't know what age these kids were, but you know, my, my vision of them is noisy, squirmy little humans, whatever size they are, you know. The disciples didn't want the interruption. Jesus wanted the illustration. What a great opportunity. I, I, you know, I, teaching all those years, you kind of got used to interruptions. But you rarely ever thought of them as opportunities. But Jesus did. And you, and you notice as you go through Luke, He'll start teaching one thing, have an interruption, start teaching something else. It's interesting how that's pretty consistent in this walk from the time Jesus left Capernaum till he gets all the way into Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, the distractions sometimes were more precious than the, what, what he was actually planning to teach that day. Anyway, suffer the little children, allow the little children to come unto me, and don't, don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I, uh, verily, I'm sorry, uh, verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. You know, we adults often think of ourselves as examples for our children on how to get into heaven. I know the way. I'm the big adult. I know what I'm doing. Kid, shut up. Learn from me. And Jesus is telling me, Bob, shut up. Learn from them. Interesting, huh? The disciples thought they had it down. And then they're scratching their heads thinking, he keeps doing that to us, doesn't he? We keep getting confused. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that every little child is automatically a member of the kingdom of heaven. I think what he's saying is the attitude of heart of a little child is what qualifies them to hear the plan of salvation and be saved, is what I'm thinking. We cannot think of ourselves as strong capable or worthy of salvation. I don't think he wants us acting like a bunch of babies in the church. And actually, I've been in churches where adult Christians acted like babies. I don't think that's the goal here. I think the goal here is that Jesus wants to recognize, you see, it is the child that better models our true condition before God in that we are small and he is big. See, it's the idea when you go up to someone that's much larger than you, you realize, wow, you're really big. That's the way we approach God. God, you're really big. I need you. The child realizes how powerless they are. How helpless they are in the world in which they live. I remember I had an uncle named Bill. He really wasn't an uncle. He was a god uncle. And when he died, I was eight, eight years old, maybe nine. He had this huge cancer, cancerous tumor in his stomach, and he took a long time to die. And when he finally died, my parents wouldn't let me go to the funeral. And 
I remember I had a little sailboat then, if you can imagine that, and my parents actually let me sail it by myself. If you can imagine that, boy, that was back in the 50s. Uh, and I remember out in our little creek, which my mother always said, don't worry about him. He can just stand up anywhere in the creek. If he falls over, boy, just stand up and walk home. Well, only partly true because the mud was waist deep and the water was waist deep. So you actually sink up to here in mud and you can't walk because you're stuck. You know. But nonetheless, I was out sailing and I remember trying to figure out, what is this life and death thing? I mean, the whole business of being alive seemed so big to me. I didn't understand it at all. Why would, why would Uncle Bill be dead? It was really the first time I ever grappled with it. And it was it was like too majestic for my mind to comprehend. I don't think I ever really grasped it at that time. But I remember thinking, wow, this is really strange. And then to never see him again, never go to a funeral, never see his gravesite or anything, just never, never even speak of him again. It just didn't seem right. He was a great big fat guy. And the reason he was friends with my dad is he owned a bar. That's how he ended up being my uh, godfather. You know, he owned a bar in Easton, Maryland. And my dad loved to drink. So the two became good friends. You know. But he was the kind of guy that at Easter time would come down and he owned a bar. He'd buy these Easter baskets like he'd go out. Now he'd cost you 150 bucks. Probably cost 10, 12 bucks back then. But boy, gigantic Easter baskets. Filled with all kinds of stuff, covered with the plastic. And I mean, just the kind rich kids get. Here he'd come laughing, come into our little cottage, give us these things. I always thought of him as Santa Claus. Why would Santa Claus be dead? I felt so powerless. And then the last thing children feel, uh, I bet they pull an awful lot out of a child's book. They're humble. They know they can't do anything. They know they can't save themselves. They know they're powerless to save themselves. They know they're too small. In the face of a huge enemy, they understand it. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter in. Even a child can teach us something, can't they? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity, this reminder, this encouragement to stand strong in faith, to persist in prayer, to not become braggarts or boastful but to approach you every day as a humble child. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.